Good evening to everyone tonight. Uh, is Donald Trump getting closer to another indictment? The former president has already been indicted twice now for two separate alleged crimes, a hush money scheme and the classified document saga. And now he is potentially facing yet another special counsel Jack Smith's investigation into Trump's efforts to overturn the election. It's clearly escalating this week. CNN has learned that Smith is focused on a chaotic shouting match that you might remember unfolded at the White House six weeks after the election. Now, that is where these baseless ideas were floated to block President Biden's victory, including martial law and seizing voting machines. Here are some of those who were in attendance at that meeting in their own words. I walked in, I saw General Flynn, I saw Sidney Powell sitting there. I was not happy to see the people who were in the Oval Office. Well, again, I, I don't think they were providing. Well, first of all, the overstock person, I, I've never met never, never who this guy was. Actually, the first thing I did, I walked in, I looked at him, and I said, who are you? And he told me, I don't think, I don't think any of these people were providing the president with good advice. The three of them were really sort of forcefully attacking me verbally. <laughs> um, Eric, Derek, and we were pushing back and we were asking one simple question as a, as a general matter. Where is the evidence? I mean, if, if, it had been me sitting in his chair. I would have fired all of them that night and had them escorted out of the building. I think that it got to the point where the screaming was completely, completely out there. I mean, you got people walk in. It was late at night. It had been a long day. And what they were proposing, I thought, was nuts. I'm going I'm to categorically describe it as you guys are not tough enough. Or maybe I put it another way: you're a bunch of pussies. Excuse the expression, but that—that's—I'm almost certain the word was used. And beyond that meeting, more signs that this investigation is nearing a climax. Arizona has become the focus of those coup efforts. The Secretary of State's office and several officials confirming subpoenas. Georgia, still a focus, as we recently learned that Jack Smith compelled at least two fake electors to testify in return for some immunity. And unlike the documents case, this one is much more complicated and more wide-ranging. There are many key questions that are still unanswered, including... Are any of these actions and were any of those proposed ideas against the law? Now, joining me now is former federal prosecutor Joseph Moreno. So, Joseph, from what we know, is there a chance that the ideas raised in that Oval Office discussion would rise to the level of a crime? And if so, what would they be? Hey, Abby, good to be with you. Well, it's interesting because obviously what we heard, there were a mix of lawyers and non-lawyers at that meeting. And so right off the bat, you have a problem with privilege and keeping it confidential. Um, you can have strategy sessions with lawyers. You can spitball ideas. You can talk about the past and developing a defense. What you can't do is potentially talk about future crimes, right? It cannot be a strategy session for doing wrong in the future. And having lawyers there does not protect it and make it privileged. So what it sounds like is the special counsel is digging into whether there were potential 
crimes effectively being plotted at that meeting. And whether you call it seditious conspiracy or something similar, it's basically were there plans to instigate violence, to rile people up to the extent that the election results would not be accepted and that people would would basically lead to violence in trying to stop Congress from um, from signing off on the Electoral College vote. So our sources are telling us that the special counsel has been asking witnesses about this meeting for months uh, in the past and also, again, more recently. So what does that tell you about how investigators are looking at this and also you know, where they are even in the investigation? Well, it tells me that probably they're probably close to um, close to the end of their investigation because this is such a touchy subject. They must realize they're going to get a lot of blowback and they have to tread carefully, which makes me think that they're close to the end because they wouldn't have done this closer to the beginning, knowing that blowback it would it would bring. And basically, again, what they're trying to say is, look, we'll give that group of people some leeway. They could have taken a few weeks after the election in good faith to look into whatever theories they thought they may have. But by the point of this meeting, it was so clear that, like Pat Cipollone said, where's the evidence? And if they're basically just throwing around ideas about how to be tough, knowing that there was no evidence to substantiate their arguments, that's a pretty damning thing. And I can see why the special counsel will want to dig into that. Also at the heart of so much of this is Rudy Giuliani, former New York City mayor and uh, an attorney for former President Donald Trump. He was one of the witnesses that was interviewed recently. And also today, a disciplinary committee is now recommending that he actually be disbarred for his 2020 election lies. They're saying, quote, he claimed massive election fraud but had no evidence of it. By prosecuting that destructive case, Mr. Giuliani, a sworn officer of the court, forfeited his right to practice law. He should be disbarred. That recommendation is, is not final. But do you think it's fair? Well, look, we lawyers, I mean, everyone likes to to hate on lawyers until they need one, right? But the fact is, we are given a lot of leeway. And as officers of the court, we are given leave to make good faith mistakes. We can be wrong on the law. We can even be wrong on the facts. What we can't do is we can't make arguments that have no evidentiary support. And that's what basically the panel said was that Rudy Giuliani, resting on his long reputation as a political figure made these very, very ambitious claims that the Pennsylvania findings of the, of the election in 2020 should be discarded. And basically, when it came down to it, he had no evidence to support those claims. And so I don't know if he will eventually be disbarred, but certainly there is significant evidence the panel found that what he did was not just wrong, it was so wrong that his license to practice law going forward should be revoked. And not just wrong, but perhaps he knew at the time because he was told by people around him that it was wrong as well. Well, Joseph Moreno, thank you so much for all of that. Thanks, Abby. And tonight on the campaign trail, the war of words escalates between Donald Trump and his closest 2024 rival, the former president bragging about his strong poll numbers, even in the wake of one federal indictment and possibly one more coming. That's why my polls go up. I'm the only person ever got indicted who became more popular. Never forget our enemies want to stop us because we are the only ones 
that can stop them. We can stop them. They want to take away my freedom because I will never let them take away your freedom. I think if you look at the people like the corporate media, who are they going after? Who do they not want to be the nominee? They're going after me. I'm yeah. running to win in, in January and February. I'm not running to juice polling now. I'm joined now by former Republican congressman in South Carolina, Governor Mark Sanford. Congressman, thank you for joining us. Yes, ma'am. Pleasure. Look, Trump continues, as is probably not surprising to you, to cast himself as a victim here of DOJ overreach. And these indictments do seem to be helping him right now in the polls. My question to you is, why won't his Republican opponents use his legal peril to make a case against him? Because they want his base. And so you're trying to tiptoe their way through this thing. But I think that comes at great peril. I mean, it's the exact same thing that we saw in the last election cycle, wherein nobody really wanted to hit Trump that hard because they figured he'd die off. And then he ended up being the last guy standing. I remember Ted Cruz at the very end, you know, then would turn on him, but he was sort of befriending him all the way through. So it's a dangerous game, but I get it. What they don't want to do is alienate Trump's base. And so they're trying to keep quiet, tiptoeing. But again, I think it's a mistake. I think they ought to hit hard. I think they've got a lot of, a lot of material to work with. Uh, uh, facts are real things, and there are scary facts and scary indictments out there that ought to be talked about in this presidential cycle on the Republican side. So we'll see what happens. But, but right now, the simple answer is they want his people. So you heard there earlier Ron DeSantis saying he's not wanting to juice the polls right now. But before he got into this race, he was supposed to be uh, the candidate who would give Trump the biggest fight. Are you surprised by his poor f- performance so far? Well, it's early in the game, so I'm, I'm not going to describe this as a poor performance. Everybody's sort of lining up behind the scenes right now, raising money, building teams, all the sort of apparatus, if you will, that goes with politics. Um, but what I would say is everybody's got to manage the game of expectations. And the game of expectations, tragically, again, because I'm not a Trump fan, has accrued to Trump's benefit because he's had two indictments against him, yet his numbers are still rising. And the game of expectations with regard to DeSantis has not worked out so well. I, I think one of the dangers that Ron is, is playing right now is trying to be sort of Trump on steroids with regard to sort of social issues. I, I think that there are really deep problems in this country with regard to the debt that's mounting, government spending, inflation, historic bedrocks of what Republicans used to be about, but they're not getting talked about. Ron's not talking about them. Other candidates aren't talking about them. I, I think if that comes back to the forefront rather than sort of who's winning the popularity contest of the moment, I, I, I think his numbers would grow. We'll see what happens. Mm, yeah, we will see. Um, meanwhile, the Florida GOP is asking primary candidates to sign a loyalty pledge in order to appear on the ballot in that state. It's very similar to what the RNC is doing when it comes to the debate stage. Do you think that these loyalty pledges should be a part of your party's primary? No. I, 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 again, I, I believe in the war of ideas. And there ought to be a robust competition on both the Democratic side and the Republican side as to this is what we stand for, this is what we believe. And inasmuch as you have a standard bearer that is at odds with those beliefs, then you as a candidate ought to be free to say, well, look, I'm sitting this one out. I mean, because 
In this case, the standard bearer is not consistent with the ideals that supposedly we believe in as Republicans or, or as Democrats. So mm -hmm. I don't think it's a good idea, but it's a way of boxing people in. And it's something that's, um, you know, seen through the years. You've seen it particularly strong here lately uh, in sort of the Trump era, but it's yeah. been around for a while. I want to ask you about this. The House Freedom Caucus voted this week to remove Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene from their ranks. Uh, this is what one of the members told CNN, which is that the confrontation between Congresswoman Boebert and Marjorie Taylor Greene, that was the last straw on the House floor. Uh, the Freedom Caucus is a, a body that you were yourself a part of when you were in the Congress. What's your response to uh, their decision to take actually that extraordinary step? Well, I mean, I'd applaud her. I mean, she's been far out crazy for a long time. I, I don't know why I would take, you know, somebody calling somebody a name on the House floor to get you there. That's a separate discussion. I, I, I would say I'm disappointed in what the, the Freedom Caucus has become. You know, originally it started as a group of folks who were going to try and steer the conference a little bit to the right, because that happened to be our perspective, particularly on economic issues. But then it became simply a Trump lapdog wanting to, you know, hang on to or be close to power. It was with glee that the chairman would hold up a conference phone, say they got the president of the United States on the phone. But it's also the reason that somebody like Justin Amash said, I'm out of here. I'm leaving. He left the Freedom Caucus because it had become so untethered from the ideas that it originally stood for. So it's sort of a drift. I don't know what it's about these days. Um, Maybe it'll come back around, but the fact that this was the last straw, it's a straw that should have gone a long time ago because this is somebody talking about all kinds of crazy conspiracies mm -hmm. that I think are harmful to both Republican ideals that, you know, or conservative ideals. I don't know what Republican ideals are anymore, but conservative ideals that we ought to be about advancing and, frankly, democratic process. Yeah, it is very interesting that this is what it took. In addition, probably also to her closeness, to the House Speaker, Kevin McCarthy, as well, which rubbed some of her colleagues the wrong way. Mark Stanford, always good to have you. Thank you very much, sir. Yes, ma'am. Take care. And next, a major inflection point by the U.S. in wartime. There are reports of illegal cluster bombs and vacuum bombs being used by the Russians. If, if that were true, it would potentially be a war crime. It was a very difficult decision on my part. The Ukrainians are running out of ammunition. Hear from a former defense secretary on President Biden's decision to send cluster bombs to Ukraine. Plus, he, he's the movie star who promotes QAnon conspiracies. And now his film just hit number one at the box office. Stay with us. Cluster munitions, warheads that explode over wide areas, ones that human rights groups call a threat to civilians. And today, the U.S., after hesitating since the start of the war, are now sending them to Ukraine. The clusters are banned by 100 countries, but even though the United States is not one of them, there's a history of American officials referring to their use as war crimes. We've seen videos of Russian forces moving exceptionally lethal weaponry into Ukraine, which has no place on the battlefield. That includes cluster munitions and vacuum bombs, which are banned under the Geneva Convention. There are 
reports of illegal cluster bombs and vacuum bombs being used by the Russians. Uh, if that's true, what is the next step of this administration, and is there a red line for how much violence uh, will be tolerated against civilians in this manner that's illegal and potentially a war crime? It is. It would be. I don't have any confirmation of that. We have seen the reports. Uh, if, if that were true, it would potentially be a war crime. Two Democratic senators now calling the move a serious mistake in a Washington Post op-ed, and they're warning that this could compound the deadly impact of the war for years. But President Biden defending his decision today in an exclusive interview with CNN's Fareed Zakaria. Two things, Fareed, and it was a very difficult decision on my part. Uh, and by the way, I discussed this with our allies, discussed this with our friends up on the Hill. And uh, we're in a situation where Ukraine continues to be brutally attacked across the board by munitions, by these cluster munitions that are, have dud rates that are very, very low, I mean, very high, that are dangerous to civilians, number one. Number two, uh, the Ukrainians are running out of ammunition. Uh, the ammunition that they, they call them 155 millimeter weapons. This is a this is a war relating to munitions, and uh, the running out of those that ammunition, and we're low on it. And so what I finally did took the recommendation of the Defense Department to not permanently, but to allow for in this transition period where we get more 155 weapons, these shells for. The Ukrainians to provide them with a something that has a very low dud rate. It's about one, I think it's one five zero, which is the least likely to be blowing. And it's not used in civilian areas. They're trying to get through those trenches and those then stop those tanks from rolling. And so, uh, but it was not an easy decision. And it's not we're not signatories to that that agreement. But I, um, it took me a while to be convinced to do it. I'm joined now by former Secretary of Defense William Cohen. Secretary, you heard there what President Biden said, that this was not an easy decision. They deliberated over it for some time. But with Ukraine waging this tough offensive, and it's going slowly, more slowly than most people expected, is the administration, in your view, making the right call? I think uh, the president has said it just right. It was a tough decision on his part, but the right one. Uh, we have a situation where Russia has attacked a sovereign, independent country uh, and has put them in the crosshairs of destruction. Uh, so President Biden uh, and our NATO allies have said this should not stand. We need to provide whatever we can reasonably uh, to the Ukrainians uh, to help them help themselves uh, defend against the Russians. So uh, I think that uh, under the circumstances, the president felt because this is going, the counteroffensive is going slower than we anticipated and had hoped. It's being uh, going slower because of the trenches, because of the landmines. This is a munition that can help overcome that, and that's the reason why he's uh, approved it. The other part of it, though, is, as you also heard the president say, the United States is low on the munitions that they have been providing to Ukraine. The stockpiles now in the United States are low. Is this a sign that this war in Ukraine is consuming United States military resources at an unsustainable rate? It is consuming our resources. Whether we can say this for any period of time, uh, it's, it's hard to say at this point. The president and our NATO allies have said we are in this for the long haul. So in the meantime, 
we are trying to accelerate the production of more 155 uh, uh, munitions. Uh, this stockpile that we have of the cluster munitions uh, is a result of we phased them out, I think, in 2016. Uh, so we have a large stockpile of them. Those will be used in the interim until our manufacturers can really accelerate the production of the, uh, the conventional munitions as opposed to the cluster. And you have a really unique view on this as well. Back in 2001, you instituted a policy requiring the United States to have uh, those munitions that have a less than 1% dud rate, which, which means basically the, the parts that don't explode when, the, when right. it is deployed. Uh, right. What does it mean uh, for the safety of these weapons for that rate to be as low as it is for the U.S. provided weapons to Ukraine? We have um, really uh, dealt into this. We've had leadership taken to get that dud rate from 20% historically going back as far as World War II. But over the years, we used them uh, in Desert Storm, for example, and we've used them since. But to get that uh, dud rate down below uh, 20% to between one and two, I don't think any other country has been able to do that. The Russians, by the way, their dud rate is 30%. So they have no concern about killing civilians. In fact, they are firing those munitions into civilian areas as opposed to what the Ukrainians want to do, and that's use those munitions, uh, munitions against the Russian soldiers in the field, not civilian areas. So they're really not comparable in terms of what Ukraine wants to do and what the Russians have been doing. And we were uh, unfortunately witnesses to exactly what you're talking about early on in the war, mm -hmm. seeing those bombs exploding in urban areas and in towns and, and, and in Ukraine. So former Secretary William Cohen, thank you for that perspective. Sure, great to be with you, thank you. There's a new movie, Sound of Freedom, and it is a box office hit right now. It's a thriller about the battle against international child sex trafficking, but critics accuse the film and its star, Jim Caviezel, of catering to QAnon conspiracy theorists. We'll talk about that next. A surprise movie battling Indiana Jones for the top spot at the box office, and it stars a QAnon promoter. The Sound of Freedom is based on the life of the real-life former Homeland Security agent who staged sting operations to catch child sex traffickers. But the film and its star are raising eyebrows among critics. Some say that it bends the truth about child exploitation and it caters to QAnon conspiracy theorists. Its distributor, Angel Studios, denies those accusations. Jim Caviezel, the star of the film, is also known for openly embracing QAnon theories. For more on this, I want to bring in a journalist and author of The Storm is Upon Us, Mike Rothschild. So, Mike, uh, the star of this film, Jim Caviezel, is coming under a lot of scrutiny for his embrace of QAnon conspiracy theories. And you seem pretty familiar with him because he doesn't really hide his association with this real wild plot uh, that that involves, you know, drinking the blood of children and things like that. No, he doesn't hide it at all. And you have a lot of people who are in this world of QAnon who say, oh, they don't know what that is. They've never heard of it. They're just asking questions. With somebody like Jim Caviezel, he is openly embracing it. He's openly using its catchphrases and its concepts. He's speaking at QAnon conventions. And this film is being marketed to either specific QAnon believers or to people who believe all of the same tenets as QAnon, but claim they don't know what it is. 
And The Sound of Freedom does focus on a real issue of sex trafficking. Uh, But that theme, it's sort of like that kernel of truth that feeds the QAnon conspiracy theory. Uh, Tell us how those two things work together. Sure. And the most durable and the most believable conspiracy theories are not entirely false. There's something in them that is true and the rest of it is false. But the believers point to the one true thing and they say, oh, you don't believe that this particular thing is true. In terms of child trafficking, we know trafficking is real. We know it has real victims. No one is denying that. But these films are created out of moral panics. They're created out of bogus statistics. They're created out of fear. And with something like Sound of Freedom, it specifically is looking at QAnon concepts of these child trafficking rings that are run by the high-level elites and only people like Tim Ballard and only people like Jim Caviezel and by extension only people like the ticket buyer can help bring these trafficking rings down. So there's a very participatory element. You're not just going to see a movie, you're just killing two hours on a hot day. You are helping bring down these, these pedophile rings and save children. Now it's not true, but it's a very comforting and it's a very warm feeling to have. Yeah. And and in fact, uh, some of the ticket sales here have come from this crowdfunding of tickets. People can actually buy tickets for other people to send them to see this movie. The other part of of it is that is fueling, it seems, the box office uh, success is that it is being spread even in sort of social, socially conservative circles. Even Donald Trump this week uh, tweeted about this film Does it surprise you that this has kind of penetrated into Hollywood in such a real way? No, it doesn't surprise me at all. The the faith-based market is enormous. The market for conspiracy theory materials, whether it's books, podcasts, merchandise, or films like this is enormous. These people have disposable income and they put their money where they where their mouth is. They feel like they are sticking it to the Hollywood elite, ironically by helping prop up theaters at a time when the when the theater industry is still really struggling to bring people back. Here's this this huge group of people buying tickets for strangers who probably aren't even going to the movie. So, you know, in one sense, you feel like Hollywood should thank these people. But there's a there's a feeling of, of all pulling on the same rope together, of all trying to fight back together. And these people, they want to be seen, they want to be represented, and they feel like buying tickets, whether for themselves or their church group or complete strangers, is a way to push back against these, these horrors that they think are infecting the whole world. Yeah, I mean, it's really fascinating. And it's an example of uh, you know, the film, we should be clear, uh, is about child sex trafficking, but it's the associations with the conspiracies that makes this such a fascinating story. Uh, thank you so much for joining me on this, Mike. Appreciate it. Thank you. And more than five years after the deadly mass shooting in Parkland, Florida, the families of those victims are now able to go inside of that building for the very first time. The scene there remains completely untouched. Up next, I'll speak with two parents who did decide to make that visit where their children died. For the first time this week, parents of those killed in the Parkland school shooting were allowed to enter that building, which remains untouched after five years. It has one of the deadliest high school shootings in history, and the building is open after the trial of the school resource officer. Not all parents decided to go, of course, but my next guests did. Max Schachter and Linda Beagle-Shulman both lost their children in the tragedy. Max and Linda join me now. Uh, Thank you, both of you, for joining me tonight. 
Linda, I, I do want to start with you. Your son, Scott, was the teacher at, at the school. He died while saving 31 students from that gunman. I wonder when you made that visit, what did you see there and what emotions did it bring up for you? Well, thank you for having me, Abby. Um, when we drove up to school, I remember saying to, to my husband that I had such trepidations even going into the school. You know, last time that we were five years ago, five plus years ago when we went, the trepidations were different. I was just hoping and knowing in my heart Scott was alive. He was probably in a hospital somewhere, you know, but he was alive. And this time going, those trepidations were so, they were just so wildly different because I know I was going and he wasn't alive, he was dead, and I was going to go and actually see where he took his last breath. When you walked into the school, we walked into the, I walked into the school, and it was exactly like they say, everything was left the way it was on that day. But even though I had seen the video of what had transpired on February 14, 2018, it was, it was just devastating walking in. It was like the difference of Zooming with someone and meeting them in person. I thought I was prepared. Um, Mike Satz took us in from the first steps where the, the murderer walked into the school and he went meticulously through the first floor looking at the, the, the windows of the doors being shut out, seeing the glass on the floor, seeing the bullet holes in the, in, in the classrooms. He explained you know, who was shot and then the, the next person and who was injured. And then we... We went slowly, but we went through the first floor and to the second floor. And then we went to the third floor. And that was really important for me because I wanted to see where my son took his last breath. And I wanted to understand what I had seen on that video where the shooter was walking up those steps and five feet away from Scott and actually shooting him six times within three seconds from five feet away. And I could see, I could see where the shooter was. I could see where Scott was. And I could finally understand where Scott was standing, how he was holding the door, how he got shot, and then go into the classroom and see where his blood was on the floor, where he was actually, where, where he laid down dead. And then go into his classroom and see all of the papers where there was Valentine's Day. There were Valentine's on the floor. There was candy on the desks. Actually seeing Scott's computer, teachers know that they have to keep their computers halfway open and halfway shut so that no matter what, when they're away from the desk, seeing his desk, seeing the things, seeing the walls, and actually seeing a paper that one of his students had handed in. And this is one of the students who had written letters to us right after the the murderer, the murder at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, and just putting the, the face and the letter and everything together. It was really quite devastating. It's, I cannot even imagine. And for you, Max, you also lost your son, Alex, in this massacre. You had said that you wanted to be, just like Linda you said, in that room where your son took his last breath. What did you end up deciding to do when you went into that school? I went, I went in there just like Linda did, and I wanted to go in Alex's classroom. I wanted to sit in the chair that Alex took his last breath in, that he was murdered in, and it was just unbelievable. I'm on the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School Public Safety Commission, so I know everything that happened. But still, for me, it, you've done a lot of coverage on the Ukraine war, 
And that's what it looked like in that school. It looked like a war zone where a mass murderer had hunted down and killed children and staff. And it was grotesque. There was blood everywhere. I was just not prepared for that. Max and Linda, uh, you all, as a parent, I can't imagine the courage that it took to do what you did. And uh, my hearts really go out to you and your whole families tonight, as I'm sure you continue to grieve um, your loved ones. Thank you very much for joining me, Max Schachter and Linda Beagle-Schulman. Thank you. Thank you. And coming up next, a preview of CNN's Sunday program, The Whole Story. The subject this week is wired for trouble. School districts and parents are suing the tech giants, alleging that social media is contributing to a mental health crisis among America's youth. The U.S. Surgeon General recently issued a warning that social media carries what he calls a profound risk of harm to the mental health and well-being of children and adolescents. Several school districts have filed suit against the tech giants, alleging that they're contributing to a mental health crisis among youth. And hundreds of families are now suing, too, including a Connecticut woman named Tammy Rodriguez. She's a mother to Selena, and Audie Cornish spoke to Tammy for a report on the lawsuits for CNN's new show, The Whole Story with Anderson Cooper. Here's a little peek. What Tammy didn't know at the time was that Selena had figured out how to block her mother from seeing her online life. She had saved her fingerprint, and I didn't know she had saved it in my phone. So, like, if I'd fall asleep or whatever, she would use her fingerprint to get in and change the settings. Once the pandemic had started, she was posting more. She became more recluse. She was focused on how many likes she has, how many followers she has how many followers she's losing, who's messaging her. During the pandemic, when Selena's school and social life moved online, she was regularly messaging with people on these apps. Some she knew, some she did not. There were adults that would reach out, um, which I was not aware of until um, not too long ago. Men, they knew she was a minor. CNN's Audie Cornish joins me now. So, Audie, you've been speaking with these families and getting a sense of really what this battle is like. It's really almost like a David and Goliath type of situation. Huge tech companies and individual families struggling with how the this technology that I'm sure some of them don't even fully understand affects their children's lives. Right. Right now, the law is not exactly on their side. Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act says that online uh, companies can't be held responsible for what you or I post on them, right? We're third-party publishers. But what that means is that if you decide that a social media company has helped draw your child into the world of eating disorders, for instance, um, you can't necessarily uh, be guaranteed that you're going to get a hearing in the courts. This came before the Supreme Court. They really didn't want to mess with Section 230. And that leaves these families in the midst of um, their lawsuits, which they're still pushing, but more so their kind of public campaign to raise awareness about this and bring pressure on the companies. What is your sense of how much social media companies recognize 
their role in creating algorithms that suck these young children in? Well, I think people now have a better understanding of algorithms in general. The idea that recommendations and recommendation engines are drawing information based on what you engage with in order to push more of that on you, which means that if you get into things that are harmful to yourself or others, it's going to feed you more of that. This is a real concern going into the world of AI. TikTok has shown sort of how um, profitable this can be. And they're probably better at it than anybody else in the game right now. Exactly. And their, let's just say their guardrails and parental supports haven't kept up. And this is not to create like a moral panic. It's to say that we have learned some lessons over the last couple of years. Francis Haugen of the Facebook Papers a few years ago is a good example. But it's not clear yet if we're actually going to see those guardrails built in or any kind of self-policing from the industry itself. And meanwhile, school districts, in addition to parents, are also struggling with this. I mean, Thinking back to my childhood, I don't think I had a cell phone until, you know, maybe the beginning of high school. Uh, Now kids have phones at such a young age, elementary school age, and parents feel like, okay, you got to give your kid a phone for safety to keep in touch with them. But schools are now struggling with how much social media is a part of the day-to-day lives of the kids that they're teaching. Exactly. In the age of school shootings, in the age where uh, post-pandemic social media and apps were built into the learning process itself so people, it could enable remote work, the sort of role that this took on in the lives of teens, I think, grew. Um, And some of them are reacting to that. You do see a kind of disconnect backlash. You do see kids talking about um, wanting to be on the apps uh, a little bit less. Uh, But, you know, their brains aren't exactly wired to do that right now. And this is what researchers are looking to, whether or not social media can really become an addiction, so to speak. And if it does, maybe that has implications for these lawsuits going forward. Yeah, I mean, you do get the sense that kids know that there's a problem. But like a lot of addictions, you can't always pull yourself out of it. And kids are probably the least equipped to do that, which makes this so difficult for them and for their families to handle. So, Adi, I can't wait to watch this full hour on Sunday night. Um, you can tune in to an all-new episode of The Whole Story with Anderson Cooper. Uh, that's one whole story, one whole hour. It airs Sunday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time and Pacific, only here on CNN. Thank you, Adi, for joining us. And coming up next, Donald Trump gets stumped at a campaign trail stop in Iowa. See what happens when we come, when we come back. So before we go, Donald Trump's love of fast food is pretty well known. We have pizzas, we have 300 hamburgers, many, many french fries. All of our favorite foods. That fish is light sometimes, right? <laughs> uh, the, uh, the Big Macs are great. The quarter pounder with cheese. I mean, I, it's great Do stuff. People- so in case you didn't know, in that first part of the video, that was inside the White House. So it was very interesting. When today, in Iowa, Trump seemed to have been caught off guard during a stop at Dairy Queen. Everybody wants a blizzard. What the hell is a blizzard? <laughs> Take care of some people, okay? Will you take care of them for me? I will do the blizzard thing, all right? Allison is here with me. So I guess, to be fair, not a whole lot of Dairy Queens in New York, probably. Hmm. But if you've ever done a road trip, as I have, 
across the country, including through the Midwest, you cannot not know what a blizzard is. Am I right? Uh, what the hell is a blizzard? It's delicious. That's what a blizzard is. That's all you need to know. It's delicious. But there are a ton in New Jersey. I'm I'm surprised that he's not up on his blizzard knowledge. Yeah, I mean, the, Trump, he literally knows the McDonald's menu, like the back of his hand. But I guess, you know, ice cream is not really his, his thing. He's more of like a burger and fries kind of guy. Well, this is Dairy Queen. Maybe he's just that committed to McDonald's. Yeah, I, I, I think so. I mean, I also think it's funny. So two things. One, report, some reporters need to check back to see if blizzards were actually purchased for people in the restaurant this time. And second of all, this is not as gross as that time that he offered a piece of half-eaten pizza to someone in <laughs> a pizza shop in Florida. Um, I think that he might get a pass for this one. No, I saw that. Even his ardent supporters were like, no, thank you. Uh, with the pizza. All right, Abby, have a great weekend. Great to see you and good evening. Thank you. Good evening, everyone. I'm Alison Camerata. Welcome to CNN Tonight. We have a fantastic show for you this evening. It's been quite a week of developments in the special counsel's investigations into Donald Trump. So what is Jack Smith's next move? Well, tonight we're going to break down who he's talking to and what evidence he has so far. Plus, A disturbing new study finds that nearly half the tap water in the United States is contaminated with so-called forever chemicals. These are dangerous synthetic compounds that are linked to cancer and other diseases. Aaron Brockovich is here tonight to sound the alarm. And the race for 2024, President Biden getting support in his re-election bid today from a top progressive, while former President Trump and Ron DeSantis are going after each other. And former Trump national security advisor John Bolton has a warning tonight. The indictments don't have any impact. He's been indicted twice. It hasn't had any impact. If he gets indicted two or three more times, who, who cares? I, I think the, the real question uh, on what the election may turn on is whether the special counsel can get a trial date and hold it uh, before the Republican primary process begins. If he can't get it and this trial is delayed until after the election, uh, I, I very much worry about what the outcome would be. Okay, so let's begin with what we know tonight about Jack Smith's investigation. Joining me now, we have CNN political correspondent Sarah Murray, former FBI director Andrew McCabe, and former Watergate prosecutor Nick Ackerman. Great to see you guys. Okay, Sarah, you've been reporting on all of Jack Smith's moves. Do you get a sense that the urgency or the timing has ramped up lately? Well, look, it's always hard to predict exact timing, right, when it comes to the special counsel. But I do think what we have seen in this investigation are a lot of activities that you would expect to take place near the end of it. You know, we've been talking a lot about this December uh, meeting uh, with Donald Trump and a number of his advisors that really went off the rails. That's something that investigators had previously asked about. And now they're sort of circling back to, they're checking on it again, Uh, with other witnesses. That's the kind of thing you would expect to see at the end of an investigation. You know, we know that they brought Rudy Giuliani in. They talked to him in a voluntary interview for two days. He's sort of a late-in-the-game witness, another box for them to check uh, late here. And we know that they have negotiated some sort of limited immunity deals with folks. Again, something you would expect to see later in the investigation. We also know, though, Allison, that there are a few witnesses out there that they haven't talked to yet. So we're still waiting to see, are there boxes out there they want to check or essentially could they be reaching the end stages, the final stages of this investigation before they announce, you know, whatever indictments they may announce. 
Nick, we learned this week that Smith, Jack Smith, uh, special counsel, is focusing on this very heated Oval Office meeting that happened um, after Donald Trump had lost the White House. So when you look, I don't know if you can see this, actually, Nick, I hope you can, all the different players. Okay, good. So all the players who were at that meeting, everybody from, you know, Rudy Giuliani, um, you can see there, as well as White House counsel. um, Who do you think prosecutors are most interested in? In terms of all those people, I mean, in terms of the person who can put it all together, I believe is Mark Meadows. He was the chief of staff. Uh, He was really the in-between person between the Willard Hotel people, uh, Steve Bannon, Rudy Giuliani, Roger Stone, General Flynn, and Donald Trump. Um, As we know from Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony, um, he was going to go to a meeting on January 5th at the Willard Hotel, uh, but due to her um, uh, kind of warning, he did it over the phone, but he knew what was going on. He was carrying the messages between all the key players and um, Donald Trump. So if I had to pick one person on there that I think is the most important, he's the man. And from what we know, he's already testified in the grand jury. Mm-hmm. Now. I wouldn't believe that he'd be testifying in the grand jury unless he had worked out some kind of a deal uh, and he's basically coming clean on everything that he knows. Hmm. Um, Andy, I want to ask you also about this New York Times reporting tonight, and that is that Trump's former chief of staff, John Kelly, said in a sworn statement that the former president asked about having the IRS and other agencies investigate those two FBI officials who were involved in the Russia investigation, Peter Strzok and Lisa Page. In other words, using the IRS to basically punish them. And uh, I was thinking this might ring a bell for you, your reaction. It does ring a bell, unfortunately. So this is really interesting, Allison, and it's it's consistent with statements that John Kelly made to the New York Times directly a few months ago about the same topic. The interesting development here, though, of course, is that he's made these same statements now under oath, under penalty of perjury, and apparently they're backed up by notes that he took in these meetings where Trump made these uh, requests about IRS investigations of Pete Strzok and Lisa Page. So that's a that's a substantiated, um, you know, essentially a piece of evidence, if you will, in, in that argument. Of course, it's it rings a bell for me because uh, I was the subject of a very rare uh, and invasive IRS audit, as was Jim Comey. Uh, you know, the likelihood of the two of us being subjected to the same sort of uh, allegedly random audit is in- infinitesimally small, although the uh, Postal Service uh, IG looked at this and and uh, didn't find any, I guess, particular uh, suspicious things about it. I feel very differently about that conclusion, but um, I don't think it's surprising to anyone that Donald Trump was trying to use his access to the levers of power in Washington to exact retribution against his perceived enemies. And whether that's through the Department of Justice, through baseless criminal criminal investigations like the one that was focused on me for two years, or through the IRS, um, this is what he does. And I think it's probably what the American people can expect if he's ever returned to the White House. Nick, if prosecutors can prove that, that President Trump was trying to exact revenge on his perceived enemies, is that a crime? That's a crime. In fact, it's the exact same crime I investigated during the Watergate scandal. Uh, Richard Nixon did the exact same thing. He had the 
head of the Democratic Party audited um, just because he wanted to create havoc uh, for his enemies. He had an enemies list. He went to the head of the IRS and asked that certain people uh, be audited. Um, so basically what Donald Trump is doing is taking the Richard Nixon playbook here um, and doing the exact same thing, probably without even realizing it. Hmm. Sarah, tell us about Rudy Giuliani. So he may lose his law license? Yeah, I mean, we know, obviously, Rudy Giuliani uh, has been facing some issues, and among them are questions about the future of his ability to practice law. And what we saw is an attorney disciplinary committee recommended that he should be disbarred here in Washington, D.C. It was a unanimous uh, decision that they wrote. There are still steps that need to take place in order for this to happen. This isn't the final word, but he's also facing an ethics review uh, in New York. And again, this is because of these kind of claims that Rudy Giuliani was peddling in the wake of the 2020 election when he was Trump's one of Trump's you know, most vociferous uh, supporters at the time and spreading these election lies. Take a listen to just some of the things Rudy Giuliani said about the election. Joe Biden is in the lead because of the fraudulent ballots, the illegal ballots that were produced and that were allowed to be used. We used largely a Venezuelan uh, voting machine in essence, to count our vote. If we let this happen, we're going to become Venezuela. We cannot let this happen to us. They look like they're passing out dope, not just ballots. Uh, it is quite clear they're stealing votes. This was the worst election in American history. This election was stolen in its seven states. Let's have trial by combat. Now, this disciplinary committee basically said, look, you are a sworn officer of the court. You can't be putting uh, claims like this into litigation that are totally not based in fact, where you have no evidence to prove this kind of fraud. Of course, his allies are calling this a great injustice. But again, you know, the clips you're seeing there are from a time when Rudy Giuliani was much closer to the former president. And we're now sort of seeing the aftermath of that in Giuliani's life. You know, he's not one of these people that we've seen around Donald Trump who's getting his legal fees paid by one of the Donald Trump PACs. You know, he's not as close to Donald Trump as he used to be. And again, as I said earlier, he also recently spoke to to federal investigators for two days, Allison. Yeah, it's hard to imagine a legitimate lawyer wanting trial by combat. That's sort of right. the opposite of what the legal system does. Um, but Nick, uh, would the special counsel ever want to cut a deal with Rudy Giuliani or is he too flawed as a witness? Oh, I, I think they would cut a deal with him in a nanosecond if he were to come totally clean, for sure. I mean, he may have to plead guilty to something to do that. Um, but yes, I mean, he was involved in every aspect of this. He can recount exactly how they created the big lie about this false election and fraud in the election. Uh, he was involved in talking to uh, legislators, trying to get the states, the battleground states, uh, to change their votes. Uh, he was deeply involved with the phony electors. Uh, he was involved with uh, John Eastman, who came up with this crazy scheme uh, to get Mike Pence to basically uh, not qualify Joe yeah. Biden as the winner of the election. So, yeah, he was involved in every aspect of this, including, uh, as I said before, being at the Willard Hotel uh, where all of the basic no goodniks were were kind of sitting around. I mean, all of those people there had either been pardoned by Donald Trump or had asked for pardons mm. by Donald Trump. So, yes, he could be a key witness here. And he also would have to deal, though, 
with what's going on in Georgia, because I think he's a target of that investigation mm. as well. Yeah. So if he's to cut a deal, he's got to do it in both places. It's complicated. Um, Andy, we're also learning the Justice Department has spent more than $9.2 million on Jack Smith's investigation of Donald Trump since Jack Smith was appointed in November. And that number, it's interesting when you look at how it breaks down. I mean, two million, more than $2 million in salaries for all the people who are uh, part of this investigation, $80,000 in relocation costs to get people to, you know, where they need to be for interviews and uh, et cetera. Is that uh, standard for investigations of this magnitude? Well, nothing about these special counsel investigations are standard. But if you put it in, if you compare uh, the costs associated with um, Robert Mueller's special counsel investigation or John Durham's special counsel investigation, it's I think it's appropriately in that same ballpark. I can't tell you exactly to the penny. Well, John Durham's was much less expensive. I mean, his was one million dollars, I believe. You know, my recollection is a, is a bit more than that. But if you oh. look at what Jack Smith has been tasked with doing and the amount that uh, the amount of investigative activity he has executed in the last few months on two entirely distinct and very complicated investigations involving numerous prosecutors and agents and uh, hundreds probably of subpoenas, hundreds of interviews, an enormous amount of time in front of grand juries in D.C. and Florida, um, I, you know, these are the sorts of bills that you can expect to see from this sort of activity. Um, so I'm not I'm not shocked by it. Mm. And they certainly have a long way to go. Obviously, you've got one indictment that's going to that'll be going likely to to trial at some point in the next uh, few months to a year. And we can expect maybe another massive, complicated indictment on the January 6th activity sometime in the next few months, potentially. Andy, <laughs> I stand corrected. You were right. The uh, that uh Robert uh, John Durham was seven million dollars, not one million dollars. Uh, obviously, I'm no mathematician. Thank you very much for explaining how how expensive and complicated these things are. Great to see all of you. Really appreciate it. Okay, so what does this mean for the Republican primary? Trump and DeSantis taking pot shots at each other today on the campaign trail. And meanwhile, President Biden picking up support from a top progressive. My panel has thoughts. Ron DeSantis accusing Donald Trump of spending more time and money attacking him than supporting Republicans. We have a lot more to do. I've also been attacked more than anybody, as you know, Will. You know, Donald Trump has spent over 20 million attacking me. That's more than he spent supporting Republican candidates in last year's midterm elections. At the end of the day, people do want to win, though. Uh, and, you know, you can't win with just Republican voters. I think we showed in Florida, you know, if you want a big victory, you got to win independent voters. you got to win people who haven't voted for our, our party in the last several cycles. I've showed, shown I can do that, and I think we can do it nationally. Okay, here to discuss the latest GOP feuds and what's happening on the Democratic side, we have Jessica Washington of The Root and our political commentators, Bakari Sellers and Scott Jennings. Great to have all of you guys. Okay, Scott, so here's an interesting paradox about Ron DeSantis. His poll numbers have been flat, basically haven't budged for several weeks. And yet his fundraising, he raised $20 million in the three weeks since he's announced. So is there enthusiasm for him or not? Well, there is enthusiasm for him, and he is in a different class than the rest of the people running. The problem is Trump's core hasn't moved. Let's just 
rough it out. Half the party wants to do Trump and half wants to do something else. The half that wants to do something else, he's got the biggest chunk, but he hasn't been able to dispatch the other, you know, several people who've gotten into the race. Having a war chest, which also includes a bunch of money in a super PAC and money they brought in from Florida, that should help him move some of these people along in theory. But in my opinion, until he gets rid of some of them, it's just going to be hard to grow market share while you've got a bunch of people taking out one to eight percent each. Yeah. Jessica, one of the things that Ron DeSantis was saying um, that is a problem for Donald Trump is that you can't win with just Republican voters, he was saying. But he's tacking to the right of Donald Trump. And, you know, as you know, I mean, his campaign, his PAC put out that um, anti-LGBTQ ad. So who does he think that he will be appealing to if he's moving to the right of Donald Trump? It's really hard to get in his head because you're right. I mean, he's saying, you know, I am more anti-LGBTQ plus than Donald Trump. And then he's also saying you can't just win with the base. And it almost seems just like a tactic for him because he has to say that. He doesn't have the base that Trump has. And so it's almost he has to say, well, Trump has just slim margins and he's never going to be able to make it because he only has Republicans. But if you look at DeSantis's base, it's, you know, it's inarguable that he doesn't have this kind of moderate swell that he would need. Well, in Florida, he absolutely had moderates and he had independents and he had a bunch of Democrats and he did turn a lot of blue areas red. His argument is, is that he has turned a big purple state red. And I know you like to denigrate your own people that he ran against down there. But, but, but it's, but it's, but it's, Charlie Chris is not my people. I would have Charlie Chris, but go ahead. But it's, but it is inarguable that DeSantis had massive electoral success among constituencies that Republicans absolutely have to win and that Trump has never gotten more votes than a Democrat in his life. So his argument is is intellectually correct. Okay, so it, it, will that translate nationally? No. And the reason it won't is because Ron DeSantis is the Tim Pawlenty, Tim Pawlenty's of Scott Walker's. Like he, Go that, on. That, that is exactly what he is. And I think in two, three, four months, we're going to not even be discussing uh, Ron DeSantis anymore. The problem is the more you get an opportunity to meet Ron DeSantis, the less voters like him. In Florida, he was able to run on policy recently. He was able to do an airdrop campaign. It's a huge state. Florida is like three states in one. He was a great statewide candidate. However, now you have to go and do kind of retail politics in Iowa, retail politics in New Hampshire, retail politics in South Carolina. And what they're realizing is Ron DeSantis is about 5'8". They're realizing that they don't really care for him that much with his interpersonal skills. And they're realizing that he's not a true fighter against Donald Trump. In order for someone to win this primary, they have to be big on the future of this country, i.e. Tim Scott. And they have to be somewhat of a bully, i.e. Chris Christie. And there's no combination of both. That was profound. I, I, that, that, that was, I'm just going to throw I, that. I, I took I mean, a moment your, to marinate Is your best argument against a candidate for president his height? No, Ron DeSantis is very, very short to be president of the United States. I mean, I'm just, is that, is that an argument no, about? That, literally. I mean, is, is, almost, is Joe Biden, I mean, like, while we're, I mean, while we're talking true. about. We're really off the rails. No, I'm just asking. I mean, you, you, five, eight, five, nine. We, we've been on TV all day together and you keep referencing his height. Are you worried about his height or Joe Biden's age? Oh, that's a tough one. But I will tell you just this. Asking. I mean, no, no, no. But I will tell you this. I mean, it, it, when the field shakes out, I believe firmly yeah. that we'll have two individuals that are close to 80 years old running for president of the United States. And I think that I think that Donald Trump is going to bully Ron DeSantis out of the nomination. Um, all right. Let's talk about what's happening on the Democratic side. So, Jessica, Congresswoman um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was on Pod Save America, the podcast today. And she said that Biden has her 2024 support. So here it is. 
I think um, I think he's done quite well uh, it, given the limitations that we have. Um, I do think that there are ebbs and flows. Will you be supporting Joe Biden for re-election? Uh, I believe given that field, yes. So what was interesting, Jessica, is that in February, she wouldn't say that. She would not say yes. She said, I'm going to see how the primary process plays out. So what's changed? I think there's obviously no one stepping up to the plate to challenge Joe Biden. And I think AOC is more of a pragmatist than she's often given credit for. I think she has shown that she wants to work with the party. She wants a Democrat to be president. She realizes the existential threat of Trump. So I think she, you know, she's saying, okay, obviously Biden is going to be the nominee. There is no one else. And so she's lining up behind him. I'm not that surprised by it. RFK Jr. has raised a lot of money. See, you're laughing, but he has raised a How lot of money. Within a three-day span at the end of the quarter, six million between April and June. Is it time for Democrats to take him seriously, Bakari? Absolutely not. You know how it's just Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is the embodiment of everything that's wrong with social media. Um, he is a caricature. He is, uh, you know, they say the apple doesn't far, fall from fall far from the tree. I mean, he's rolled off the orchard. Um, he is not his uncle. He's not his father. Um, he, I, I'm not sure why he's running for president other than just some reason to build up his own self. I, I don't think that Joe Biden should uh, pay attention to him. I don't think he should debate him. I think that he's a caricature and I think he will fade away. Quickly, Scott. Coddled by, created by, and brought to you by the American left. RFK Jr., is fully a product of the Democratic Party and the American left. That's not true. It's not. Joe Rogan. <laughs> he has, yeah, he Joe Rogan. And, Joe Rogan. Uh, I'm, and, I'm sorry. Joe Rogan. It wasn't. And him are it not wasn't. The it wasn't left. the Republican Party that brought this guy along for the last. Well, we don't want two, him. three decades. Uh, you can have him. Uh, all right. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. You could. <laughs> <laughs> Give it away that easy. He's too, he's too tall for us, Bakari. You can tell it's a Friday night. You can tell it's a Friday night on the set. All right, thank you. On that note, okay, this next story is actually quite serious. It impacts millions of us. Nearly half of the tap water in the U.S. is contaminated with, quote, forever chemicals. This is according to an alarming new study. And Aaron Brockovich is here next. An alarming new study estimates that 47 percent of our tap water in the United States is contaminated with so-called forever chemicals. The U.S. Geological Survey tested 700 locations across the country and found out how widespread these chemicals are. The EPA believes these chemicals are more hazardous than previously thought. Joining me now to discuss is consumer advocate Aaron Brockovich, who has sounded the alarm on this for years. Aaron, thank you so much for being here. Such an important story. What are forever chemicals? Well, so there are chemicals that you would find, you know, PFOA, PFOS, you would know as Teflon, you would know it as a plastic coating, you would know it as firefighting foam, you would know it as flame retardant that we use on our furniture and, you know, children's nightwear, uniforms, firemen in their gear. Uh, that is specifically what PFOS and the PFOA chemicals are. Okay. And at, recently, and, yeah. I just what well, do they do, what do they do to humans? Now we know. Oh my gosh! Well, they they create a lot of problems. They can call 
cause or preeclampsia in pregnancy. They can cause testicular cancer. They can cause thyroid cancer. It can lead to liver problems. It can lead to higher cholesterol, higher blood pressure. It can lead to a plethora of diseases and cancers. And it's alarming because it took too long for us to study this chemical. It got into the marketplace decades ago. This isn't something that just showed up and happened yesterday. Uh, the companies have known, they have warned, and there's been a lot of agency failures and a quick response to corral this chemical before it became widespread throughout our water system across the country. Here's the map of the hotspots where scientists found the highest concentration of these chemicals. So it looks like the Northeast Corridor, right, from Washington, Philadelphia, New York, also Cape Cod, as you can see on there, are particularly bad. But then it is scattered throughout the country. So do we know why it's concentrated in those areas? Um, Well, a lot of where industry went and where they were using it. So we've been up in Maine a lot. Now, most people don't know this. Almost the entire state of Maine and its water has been contaminated with this chemical. Uh, It was found in the dairy milk. Uh, The USDA delayed about 18 months reporting that to the state. They've had to the farmers who have had to go in and kill all their cattle. You cannot use it in milk. It's gotten into the food chain there. It's gotten into the eggs. And part of the thing with PFOS and the PFOA, and it's a family of chemicals of about 11,000 different chemicals. These are just four of them that we know of. But it follows protein. So it gets into the food supply, which would be milk, cattle, beef, eggs and leafy greens. So this chemical follows protein and we uptake it. So we have a huge issue here with such a large groundwater contamination because it's also entered our food chain. And so, Aaron, what do we all do? How do we protect ourselves? Well, you know, um, (laughs) well, this is a good start. You know, a lot of people don't know about it because we don't talk about it. And it isn't until it's something national that will really come to people's attention. But at a local level, they're doing a lot of things in Maine and in Michigan. They're working with senators. They're getting statute of limitations extended because all of these farmers are looking for some type of recourse. The municipalities have been heavily impacted. The Biden administration does have about a trillion dollar fund. It's called, I believe, Biden Bucks is how we refer to it, where these municipalities can go because they're going to have to put on very expensive filtration systems to keep this one chemical out of the water supply. Uh, People need to know about their well water. They should have their well water tested. Some states have will come out and do well systems for them. So it's a matter of asking information or asking questions, getting a water report, working with your community, especially in the farming community, and um, start knowing if In fact, you do have PFOS in your water because you'll need the appropriate filtration to keep it out of your water. And this is a situation, Allison, that's really just begun, even though it's been in the system for decades, because we haven't even begun to look at the sludge or wastewater. And we take a lot of that and apply it to farmlands, Mm. which is adding to 
the food contamination. Well, it's really alarming. And you say that most filters only remove taste and smell. They don't remove these forever chemicals, but reverse osmosis, if you can afford it, is the way to go. It can cost anywhere between 750 and 7,500. So everybody needs to just be aware of it and begin thinking of how they can keep themselves safe. Um, Aaron, we could talk about it for hours. I'm sorry that we're out of time, but we'll have you back. And I really appreciate you sounding the alarm on all of this for us. Well, thank you for having me. And I, I hate to be a downer on this, but it, it, listen, this is a big issue that's not only going to affect all of America, but globally as well. And I can't think of anything more important than the protection and the safety of our drinking water. Yeah, agreed. Thank you for being here. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, more uh, climate and Earth news. The Earth has broken global temperature records virtually every day this week. And our next guest has studied climate change for years and has two important suggestions for what we can do now. Global temperature records were shattered this week. One scientist tells CNN that this week's temperatures are probably the warmest in, quote, at least 100,000 years. Monday's global temperature average beat the last high from 2016. Then Tuesday set a new record on top of that, and Thursday's temperatures mark the hottest in recorded history. Scientists say temperatures are in overdrive this month thanks to a combination of the natural climate phenomenon called El Nino and human-caused global warming. Joining me now is Monica Medina, president and CEO of the Wildlife Conservation Society that works to address the world's climate crisis. Monica, thanks so much for being here. It's hard not to feel powerless as we watch the earth burn around us. On June 6th, New York City, as you know, was among the top places for the worst, most dangerous air quality on Earth because of wildfires in Canada. So do we need to be prepared for more days like that ahead? We absolutely do. Thank you so much for having me on tonight, Allison. And thanks for this back-to-back, these back-to-back segments on environmental issues. They're so important to our health and to our future. Uh, Yes, we absolutely need to be prepared for more of the same. In fact, we've had the five of the last uh, eight years have been the hottest on record. So it's not just the last four days. It's years of increasing heat. And we know that heat is deadly. It is something that we need to take seriously, just like those bad air days were last week and the weeks before that in New York City and all over the East Coast and as far west as Chicago and as far east from us as Europe. So we know that this is what we're facing and we have to adapt. And so we can adapt. Let's I think, talk about uh, that because I do. I mean, uh, Monica, I, I, sorry to interrupt. But I just think that sometimes people turn away from these segments and this topic because it feels so overwhelming and we feel so powerless. And so I was heartened to read that, you know, you have suggestions. We can still do things. It's not too late. And so what do we do to adapt now? I think it is definitely not too late. We cannot give up. We don't have any choice but to adapt. And we've always understood that change happens But so does progress happen, and that's why we need to keep going with our energy transition. We need to wean ourselves off fossil fuels. But the other big thing that we can do, and this is what we're really working on at the Wildlife Conservation Society, is to conserve nature all over the world. The most effective carbon sinks we have right now are trees, our nature and wild places 
intact forests in places like the Amazon and the Congo, places where we work today to conserve nature and biodiversity as those natural uh, barriers and defenses to uh, what we see as this incredible warming, whether it's trees in cities and planting trees in cities like we're doing here in the U.S. with some of the new climate legislation that was passed by Congress, or whether it's preserving intact forests. There's a lot we can do with what we have today. And then if we lean into technology, things like clean energy, new ways of, uh, of transporting ourselves. Just this week, uh, the, the, world, um, uh, the International Maritime Organization has improved shipping, uh, has set goals to improve shipping uh, emissions. So we know that we can do this. We just have to keep trying. And we only have about 30 seconds left, Monica. What can individuals do today? What individuals can do today is mobilize uh, for uh, political action, I think, to continue to lean in to to these new efficient cars, uh, new and more efficient energy technologies, supporting wind, solar, all of the transitions, and supporting conserving nature and biodiversity everywhere that we can around the world. Yeah. Um, Great advice. Monica Medina, thank you very much. It's really nice not to feel hopeless about it as we watch everything that's certainly been happening this week. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. Okay, there's been a slew of shark bites off the coast of New York, and it has officials trying something new this weekend. So next, I'll speak to an expert who gets up close and personal with sharks. This is him about how we stop this. Beachgoers in the New York area are on high alert after five people were bitten by sharks in a 24-hour period this week. One 15-year-old boy describes his experience on Long Island. My first reaction to when the shark grabbed my foot was to immediately get out the water and get help. Good idea. Now officials are trying something new. They'll use drones in addition to lifeguards to scour the water for predators. Let's bring in Shark Week expert and wildlife biologist, Forrest Galante. Forrest, thanks for being here. So there's this uh, website, I'm sure you know, trackingsharks.com. They say the number of suspected shark bites this summer has already surpassed last year's total. Why are sharks biting us more? (laughs) Well, specifically in the Northeast, Allison, what's going on is there have been increased bunker regulations, which is a small species of bait fish. And as that fishery has rebounded from near collapse, what that's done is brought in a whole lot more predators. So we're seeing more dolphins, more whales, and of course, more sharks. So with more sharks comes a higher likelihood of an encounter with a shark. And occasionally those those likelihoods, those encounters happen to be negative. Okay, that thank you. That is really helpful in explaining what's going on. So do you think that the plan for using drones to spot sharks before they can bite swimmers will work? I absolutely do. I mean, I think that it would take a lot of drone coverage at all times, which is something that's very difficult to to implement. That being said, uh, you know, my team and I use drones all the time to monitor sharks up and down beaches and especially in shallow areas where you don't necessarily need to know what the species of shark is. As long as you can make out the outline, you can use a drone to fly overhead and look for those sharks. But 
honestly, the better methodology is to be a safe beachgoer and a safe swimmer and make smart choices when visiting the beach so that you avoid an encounter in the first well, place. Well, like what? What am I supposed to do when I go to the beach? It's a good question. So there's a couple things that you can consider. Um, first of all, is not swimming where people are cutting up fish or cleaning their catch if they've been fishing. Not swimming near river mouths where water is typically dirtier and sharks are hunting. Sharks are crepuscular, which means they hunt during dusk and dawn. So choosing to avoid swimming during those times is a good idea. And then, of course, if you do encounter a shark, just stay calm because that panic, that splashing, that's what leads to the case of mistaken identity in which uh, sharks are biting people. These are not attacks. These are cases of mistaken identity. They see a hand flashing in the murk or a foot in the sand. They think, ooh, a nice juicy fish. Take a bite and go, yuck, that's not a fish, and let people go. Let's watch what happens when you encounter a shark because you study sharks for a living and we have this clip of you free diving to get up close and personal with, I believe, a bull shark. So let's watch this and listen for a minute. This is our best shot. Now, if I can just get her to come check me out. Weighing close to 2,000 pounds, this hungry mama nearly knocks me over. That's awesome. Should we all do that? Just grab the shark by the snout when we when it comes up to us? Is that what we should do? Definitely. Do everything you see on TV, you know, make, <laughs> regardless of your experience level. No, of course not. Uh, don't go swimming with giant tiger sharks or pushing any sharks on the nose like I did there. That takes years of training, years of understanding the animals. We were there collecting samples. Uh, that shark, as you saw, came to me, and I, I wasn't going to her to push her around. I had to just sort of stop her uh, pushing me over. So don't do that. You know, if you don't, want, if you want to get bitten, that's a very good way to do it. So I don't recommend trying to fiddle with sharks. Instead, I recommend very responsible and safe uh, visiting of beaches and oceans, and that will the likelihood of a shark encounter is very, very minimal. All right, Forrest, thank you very much. Thanks for the tips. I'll be avoiding the ocean at dusk and dawn. Um, Thanks for all of that, and thanks for sharing the great video with us. Have a great weekend. Thank you. Well, the July 3rd mass shooting in Philadelphia has drawn national attention, but for one anti-violence advocate, it hit very close to home. 2022 CNN hero Tyreek Glasgow has been working for a decade to make his South Philly neighborhood safer building bridges with the police and providing critical support to hundreds of residents. Now, the loss of more loved ones has made him even more determined to keep pushing for positive change. The reality of, you know, just hearing gunshots is normal in our community. The family members and friends that I've lost is countless. I knew two of the victims. My cousin, he always looked out for me growing up. And Lowan is what our organization is about. He wasn't a young man out here selling drugs, carrying guns. He was one of the young men who wanted to do right. And to have, you know, him taken away senselessly, I was hurt. We need to provide a table of resources instead of having this table of grief. Today we started our summer camp and working with the kids, having a safe place for our children. What's your favorite color? That's what we try to do every day. Our community engagement center helps us, you know, really provide those essential quality of life resources. They're small acts that really change a community's trajectory. 
I believe that that's how we grow as a community, lifting each other up. It allows me to keep going forward. And you can find out more about Tyreek's work and nominate your own CNN hero at CNNHeroes.com. Nominations close July 31st. Thanks so much for watching CNN Tonight. Our coverage continues now. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.